Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello. Okay, today we're going to talk about what I suspect is a universal or at least near universal issue, anger. Speaking personally, this is one of my most prominent inner struggles. Anger can be clarifying and motivating, but it can also make me extremely stupid. Most of the apologies I've had to issue in my life are the result of my having been carried away by rage. Today, though, we're going to talk not just about anger, but also about two mental skills that can help us channel our anger into something even more powerful and effective. And those skills are forgiveness and equanimity. My guest is Jacoby Ballard, who's a meditation and yoga teacher. We talked about how he went from an activist who was largely fueled by anger to a Dharma teacher who has a very different but no less committed approach. We talked about the sometimes useful role of anger in activism and other aspects of life, but the danger of being stuck in anger mode. We talked about the subtle but powerful move of getting in touch with what is beneath our anger using annoyance as a jumping off point for inner investigation, specific ways to work with anger, including sitting for tea with it, which I changed to having a beer with it, and also learning to discharge the energy that anger builds up in the body. Then we move on to forgiveness, including forgiving ourselves, and Jacoby has a particularly moving story about this. We also talk about getting over the need to be right and finally, we talk about equanimity, or as Jacoby calls it, his tussle with equanimity. A little bit more about Jacoby. He's a social justice educator and yoga teacher who identifies as trans, and he's the author of a new book called A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. Heads up, there are some brief mentions of trauma and suicide here. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 
10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favorite. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Jacoby Ballard, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. I was very intrigued and uh, I found it very relatable that one of the big topics you tackle in your book is anger. Yeah. And so I thought maybe it would be worth starting with the role of anger in your life. Yeah, I think a lot of my activism started there. A lot of other people's activism starts with anger because it's easier sometimes to tap into than grief, but usually the heartbreak motivates our activism. Some kind of harm is happening, some kind of devastation, violence is happening, and we're moved to put a stop to it. And anger plays this great role in that it ignites our adrenaline, right? And it allows us to act. I think within my own activist training and various social justice movements, anger is really stoked because it is so powerful and potent and it can stop people in their tracks and shift directions for a policy or a campaign or a way of life. And so I really cultivated my anger over about the course of a decade. And in terms of my activism, I think it made it powerful. It made my voice land in a more profound way. And it also, because I was kind of like stuck in anger mode, it also frayed a lot of my relationships. How so? When I had turned on that critical eye, I couldn't just look at some things critically and not others. And so I started calling out my friends pretty constantly for putting aluminum can in the trash instead of a recycling bin or for buying a pair of Nikes instead of getting something at the thrift store. Or I think I had some purity politics, which I think is found within activism, that it's so easy to see all of the things that are wrong. So then there's this inclination to make my own words on actions, every one of them on the side of justice. But it's not possible, right? We can't be perfect in any realm, including in our activation of justice. And so... I wasn't very pleasant to be around and my friends stopped wanting to hang out with me or had some really hard conversations of uh, telling me you're being extra critical and I'm actually someone that's on your side. Like, I love you. I'm behind you. I'm in the movement that you're in. And I think over the course of the last decade, I've shifted course to take that anger 
and get in touch with the grief that's beneath it. And if I can get in touch with the grief, I can touch into my heart and what I care about and what is most important to me. And then if I'm in touch with that, then I can act from a place of love and consider what is going to draw people together, what is going to create connection, what is going to draw people in to say racial justice work or climate change work, rather than pointing the finger and getting mad at them. I've learned through studying the carceral system that punishment, judgment, isolation doesn't work to transform behavior. And so if we're wanting to create a better world, we need more people to be creating that better world. And so we need to be drawing the flies with honey, as the old adage says. I was having dinner with the staff that works incredibly hard on this show. And they started making fun of me because I say the same kind of these verbal tics, these things that I say a million times. And one of them is, <laughs> just found myself tempted to say it, so I'm going to just say it, but I'm going to call out that I say it all the time, and now people are making fun of me for it, that you've brought me to this point that I love, which is that I have a million questions based on everything you've just said. So one of the things I want to talk about, but I'm going to put a pin in it, but I want to signal to the audience that I want to talk about it is you've answered this whole question or pretty much most of this question through the lens of activism and not everybody listening to this show will be involved in activism. So I, I want to signal to people that we're going to venture beyond that at some point, but staying with activism for a second, you throw out some terms of art from the meditation world that some folks who are not steeped in it might find gauzy or incomprehensible or whatever. You talked about being in touch with your heart and coming out of love, all of which is great, and I, I co-sign on it. But can you put it in plainer language for people who might not be able to access what you're pointing to? Yeah, I guess to put it most simply, instead of considering what are you against, what are you for? What do you stand for? What is most important to you? What moves you? What touches you? What allows you to put down your head at night and fall soundly asleep? Or what wakes you up in the middle of the night because you care about it? What helps you get out of bed in the morning? That's love to me. So love, it doesn't have to be white light string music. It's just whatever you care about. Yeah, exactly. Whatever moves you. And what's beautiful is that all of us are moved by something different. And that's so important, right? In a household, in a family, in an organization, in a business, that's an asset because collectively we have so many different lenses that we're looking out through. And so then collectively we care and love about a lot more than just any kind of individual. It's tricky, though, because I know you were in that period of time where you sounded like you were a barrel of laughs calling people out on their sneakers and their recycling <laughs> practices. And yet, I mean, you weren't wrong. So how do you navigate that where anger sees clearly, right? Not always, but it can see clearly and be, as you said, quite a motivator. And so how do you know when to dial up the clarity lens or dial it down without being a sellout? Yeah, I try to have the same conversations, but through a lens of connection. So considering what my friend who wears some Nike sneakers or drives a fancy car or whatever the thing is that irks me or feels like it's part of systems of oppression and systems of injustice, I try to consider like, what does this person care about? Are they an art therapist? And so how can I go through kind of that doorway are they a writer? Are they a landscape architect? How can I read what they love and try to gear the conversation through that doorway rather than just like pointing the finger and putting up a 
I don't know, red flag right away (laughs) where their nervous system is automatically, I know from studying the nervous system through mindfulness and through yoga that we shut down through someone's tone of voice, through their body language, much before we actually hear what they're saying. So I try to make sure that when I'm having hard conversations that I'm in a grounded place. And if, you know, through my mindfulness practice, if I'm not in a grounded place, then I try to not have the conversation. I try to just say, Dan, let's come back to this in like 15 minutes. I need to step outside. I need to pet my dog, whatever I need to like calm down. Because I think otherwise we do the anger a disservice. There's such wisdom and clarity there, as you said. But if I allow the ferocity of anger to scare someone away, then I don't actually get to connect with that person. I don't, there's no change that happens. The wisdom of the anger doesn't land anywhere. I'm just going to stay with the Nikes in the fancy car just for a second because I felt myself reacting personally to that. I wear a lot of Nike sneakers personally, and we only have one car because I'm too cheap to have us get a second car, even though we need it. But the car we have is pretty nice. And I don't know. I went to the following little diatribe in my mind listening to, which was. I'm good on a bunch of issues, right? I feel like I'm good on a bunch of issues. I don't eat meat and blah, blah, blah. So let me have my Nikes (laughs) instead of hitting me with the systems of oppression. I suspect I am articulating the inner dialogues of people listening. Some people listening, not all. How do you deal with obnoxious people like me? I mean, I I first honor all the the things that you are doing to stand on the side of justice and do the right thing and have some sort of moral code that's so important. And because we're imperfect beings, all of us as humans, there's always going to be more to do. And that's part of being in relationship with each other is shining a light on what more there is to do, qualities to cultivate in ourselves, whether that's generosity or honesty. I would say to consider everything that goes into a pair of sneakers, right? Like the rubber trees or the leather or the synthetic products that instead of using leather or where do those come from? What communities does that come from? Who makes it? Is the process of production dangerous to certain communities? To kind of look at the different aspects that brings the pair of Nikes to your feet, right? And consider, is that really worth it for me to like endanger all these different people's lives because I want something fly on my feet. (laughs) I mean, I bought my first pair of Nikes in like 20 years, a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, whoa, can I do this? And that's your business. I can ask the questions, but it's any, each of us, it's our own karma to deal with. What bargains am I willing to make? And what am I willing to like take a stand on? How did you end up buying Nikes? I just, I need to know. (laughs) Through some advertising manipulation. (laughs) 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 The algorithms figured out the colors I like and the tones and I don't know. Yeah, and I guess I just kind of like you. I know that there's some things that I really take a stand on and that sometimes I need to not be pure and allow that to be too. And I think that allows me a sense of connection with other folks who can't always be pure, which is all of us, right? I think it's important for us to allow ourselves a little bit of room and for me to depart from any kind of purity politic. So if I can be that myself, then I can interface with anyone who also is making some negotiations and perhaps throwing some people under the bus and perhaps taking a stand and being in solidarity with others. Dolly Chug is a researcher in bias and diversity 
related stuff at NYU. I'm mangling her area of specialty. So sorry, Dolly, if you're listening. And she has a concept, a sort of word that she made up and uttered here on the show and has written about in a book she wrote that I have grabbed onto in a huge way. And it's the concept of good-ish. And I think it's really helpful in this zone. I think she's specifically referring to it as if you carry this concept that you're a good person, well, then somebody, when they point out that you've made a mistake, well, then you freak out because you go into an identity crisis. But if you carry the view of I'm good-ish, well, then then that's a growth mindset all the time. And I think you can kind of tweak that concept a little bit to apply it to what you're talking about with purity politics. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We can then see a conversation like this as helping each other become even better humans on the planet instead of me having any kind of aversion to someone not doing X, Y, or Z that I've been doing for a decade to benefit the environment or to benefit impoverished people on the other side of the globe. And we can find a a sense of connection and and know that we're growing together. And that's going to benefit any kind of relationship, whether it's colleagues or even an interaction with a stranger in a grocery store, right? So just to close out the activism portion, I'm sure we'll come back to activism throughout, but before we move into a little bit more of an interpersonal zone, would it be safe to sum up by saying anger can be clarifying and motivating, but if that's the only fuel you're running on, it's likely to be problematic? Yeah, it's going to burn something. It has this fiery energy that if you just stay with anger for too long, it's going to destroy You've been talking about anger in your life within the context mostly of your activism, but what about in your personal life beyond policing people's footwear? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it arises for me in any kind of space that I'm in. I mean, because there's troubling dynamics in most spaces, whether it's a restaurant and who are the dishwashers and who are the cooks and who is the owner of the business and who are the patrons. I can't Having been groomed as a social justice educator for a long time now, I can't walk into any space and not see those dynamics. And I think I feel comforted or or less on edge, less critical, certainly, when people involved are also aware and trying to change something. But when it's some sort of institution that maybe even is aware of those dynamics, it has no interest in changing because it benefits profit as the bottom line, that is a major source of anger for me. In terms of friendships, I'm a survivor of various kinds of trauma. And so when there's dishonesty or a lack of transparency, I think first I experience doubt in the person and in the relationship, and then it might boil up into anger. There's certain things that we can do to respect any kind of relationship, and honesty is one of them. And I want that in my personal lives. And I think I feel deep grief if someone isn't interacting me with consistent honesty. And so on top of that is the protective anger that arises for me. So you suffered some pretty serious wounds earlier in your life, and they can resurface these traumas in moments when you feel like you're not getting what you need in in a current relationship with a friend or a family member or whoever. Yeah, I think so many traumas continue, even the same traumas continue to be perpetuated because of a lack of transparency and honesty. And so I see honesty as a real salve to trauma survivors and to preventing the same harms from happening. And so my nervous system feels unsafe if there's not honesty, clarity, transparency. You've referenced a couple of times that there's anger, but often something beneath it. You've talked about grief 
Mudita Nisker, who's a teacher with whom I've worked for a couple of years, once I was complaining about something in my anger, and she said that she thinks of anger as a secondary emotion. It's usually covering up for something beneath it. You've talked about grief. In my case, I think it's often fear. But does that land, that idea of a secondary emotion, does that land for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a protective device that our bodies go through because grief or fear is there's such a vulnerability there, right? And sometimes we're not safe enough to feel the full extent of our vulnerability. And so anger with all of its adrenaline and its fire protects us and protects that vulnerability. What about when things are just straight up annoying? Well, that's an opportunity to look at what is annoying about it. Am I trying to control the situation and it's out of my control and that's annoying? Yeah, is something not going my way? Are things not moving on a timeline that I'm expected or that the culture supports? And that's annoying to me. I think it's an opportunity to look at what is annoying about? Can I get in touch with that as an inquiry and, and use the mindfulness practice to kind of dig a little bit deeper? Because there's something there that annoyance is very surface. There's something deeper down, again, that it's either like alerting you to or kind of protecting and burying. That's so interesting you said this because I can understand it just interpolating back into my own life. I can understand me getting angry in the face of something that I'm sad about and I don't want to deal with the sadness. I definitely understand fear and protecting myself with anger. But then there are like, I, I was flashing back to last night. I was, we had an incredible day. I have a seven-year-old son and my wife and my son and I, we had a bunch of families over at the house. We we're in the sun all day, we we're a bunch of kids. And at around seven o'clock at night, we we're all incredibly tired, which is, it's amazing how tired you can get doing absolutely nothing all day. But we're really, really tired. And my son melted down over not being able to find his blankie. I wasn't even in the, my wife, bless her, was dealing with it. But I could just see this incredible rage coming up. And I was trying to figure out, like, what is that? And I think there's a bunch of things, but I think you just named one thing, which is part of it was I couldn't control it. Like, there was no stopping this. And, and my way of dealing with it would have been to make it worse. Yes. You just made a squashing movement with your hand. <laughs> yes. And that would have been a disaster. I should start prepaying his therapy bills now if I had <laughs> engaged in that way. But I think you're right. Another source of anger is, and we, we call it annoying or I called it annoying, but it, it can just be not getting what you want. Things aren't going your way. Yeah. And parenting is such a great insight <laughs> into that, right? Because there's this little being that you're responsible for and they have their own sets of needs and wants and understandings of the universe and their own timelines that are largely not about productivity or efficiency. And that can be annoying. <laughs> All right. So let's get practical now, because you certainly do in your book. What are some ways we can work with anger, whatever the source? I think it's really important to discharge it, to recognize the energies there. For me, it's usually a heat, usually in my gut or in my throat. And I feel like, I stand up a little bit taller. My eyes are a little bit brighter. My whole nervous system is activated. I'm, I'm paying attention in a really focused way. And I'm a yoga teacher, right? And so I work with the body a lot and have studied trauma and the nervous system for a long time. And I know that that energy of anger needs to move through us. So we can work with that through screaming, through singing, through stomping through any, most kinds of sports allow us to channel that energy 
agar and that way it could be really useful for athletes because it activates the body dancing drumming there's so many things that are a natural part of so many cultures that are about conducting the energy through our bodies so that then we can settle and have a more intentional conversation with one another the wisdom of my anger or the wisdom of your anger can land because the energy of it has moved through us so people listening to the show might be tempted to do any number of things in the face of anger, but one of them might be to hurl themselves into the lotus position and meditate it away. But it sounds like in your view, step number one is let it move through you, discharge it. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we go to this place of prayer or compassion or meditation right away, then it stifles the anger and it stifles the rage. And as one of my students said, then that rage is gonna go somewhere and it might end up coming out the side of your neck. <laughs> which is not going to be useful to anyone. Think of your your the 7-year-old child having a meltdown, right? Like he he needs to move his body as part of that meltdown. The energy needs to move through him. If you were to pin him down, <laughs> right? Which hopefully we're not doing, but his whole system is going to go into shutdown and at some later point, whether it's like later that evening or a decade later or 50 years later, that energy is going to have to come out. And if we don't allow space for that energy to come out, then it, it just foments inside of us, inside of our individual bodies, inside of our communities, our households. And that's dangerous. It needs to be expressed. Okay, so I think that you made that point really well. What about once that's done, how to work with it in a meditation. Yeah, to get really curious about it, to think about sitting for tea with your anger, considering what would my anger have to say to me? What wisdom would it impart to me right now if we could just have a really calm cup of tea across the table where there's no threat, right? Because usually there's something really profound. There's something that like really touches my heart. Maybe that something is under threat or being dismissed or disregarded or has been disregarded for centuries or generations, right? Sitting in meditation, just listening. Tell me, anger, what do you have to tell me? And to just continue asking that question or the question in your own mind of listening to it. That's really interesting because... I think a lot of listeners will think of meditation as, okay, follow your breath. Try not to think. But it sounds like you are saying this is allowing the discursive mind to interplay with the raw data of physical sensations. Yeah, I mean, it's holding that... It's a contemplation rather than meditation. It's an inquiry that holding in the space of meditation and the space of your practice that maybe you're new to practice or maybe you've been practicing for a long time, just holding the question in the practice. It might not be the insight that you want. It might not be on the timeline that you want. But I think holding the question is really important for the truth to come forth, to feel safe enough to land somewhere. So you're the meditation teacher, I'll defer to you, but I could imagine this practice working, for example, by sitting for a few minutes in the traditional way, letting the mind settle, focusing on one thing like the breath or the feeling of the whole body sitting or even the traditional loving kindness phrases or doing something to settle the mind for a few minutes and then opening up to, okay, anger, what do you have to say? Let's have a beer together or you prefer tea. So we're having a beverage with our rage. And maybe that's easier to do once the mind has calmed a little bit. Does, does that description sound on to you? 
Yeah, exactly. So you let the energy move through you, stomping, singing, dancing, going for a run is my favorite way. And then sitting quietly. I usually do a little bit of breath work because I've studied breath work for a long time and I know the breaths to settle the nervous system. And then, yeah, just asking the question. And then, and I think it's also helpful to work with a teacher who's going to help you ask the question and hold whatever arises for you without judgment, without any kind of expectation of what the answers or insights should be and help you get even more curious about it as kind of like an external listener. I want to get back to breath work in a second because you mentioned it and some people might want to know what does that exactly mean. But you just said the thing about the teacher and I just flashed back to a conversation I was having with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, recently where I was, I know that he's told me and I've also just seen it since I've known him for so long and I've seen it in my own behavior and I've seen it with other people. People tend to act, be on their best behavior around him because they're around the guru, whatever. And so I try to be as ugly as possible around him just to counteract that and show it all and let him, you know, react to it. And the hallmark of his reactions, and I think this is true for people who have done a lot of practice, is an utter lack of judgmentalism. I mean, he just, I think once you've looked at your own mind enough, you realize that you're capable of of anything. And so you're way less judgmental. And to me, that's the value of interacting with a teacher around this stuff. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a product of of looking at your own mind and also just years of practice, right? That he's probably been judgmental in the past and seen how that went with a student, right? And it probably didn't go so well. And so then out of his mindfulness practice, he probably learned something from it. I know that part of mindfulness is not to never make mistakes, but when we do make a mistake, it's in our awareness such that we can be present enough to not make that same mistake again. So he's been practicing that for a long time. And then he greets you with all of your messiness showing up and he is prepared. He's encountered that within himself. He's been in this role as teacher. There's a level of experience and skillfulness there. What if you don't have a teacher? And I think most of us don't. I mean, anyone on any of the meditation apps that you might listen to, a lot of teachers have skill. I think it is important to be in some kind of a relationship with a guide because it's people that are further down the path than you that have been practicing for a long, longer time that have probably encountered some of the difficulties within their being that you encounter within yours and have probably found and honed some tools along the way and can kind of help you from going off on various detours to keep guiding you down the path towards clarity, towards truthfulness, towards a greater level of, of kindness. And right now there's so many teachers that are available and in this post-pandemic or coming out of the pandemic moment, so many of us are available online to people all over the world, right? Many people work with marginalized communities and, and have a sliding scale fee, don't have a fee necessarily, although they, they accept donations. And so there's really, there's not too many reasons to not work with a teacher right now. Although I will say that it is important to do your homework and know who you're going to choose for your teacher to know some of the things that they've gone through in their life. The mindfulness industry is huge and is multi-billion dollar industry now. And so like any other industry, there are bad products or unpracticed teachers. So if you just pursue any teacher that could work out well and it might not. It's useful. It's important to do a little bit of homework. 
I should say that we at 10% Happy are actually working on a product that will allow people to access teachers individually or as part of a group, which will be rolling out over the next year or two. But what you're recommending is, and I think I would co-sign on this, is meditation teachers you hear on this show or, or, or teach on your favorite app or may go by the name Jacoby Ballard, you look up their websites and reach out to them and see if they're accepting students. Yeah, exactly. Coming up, Jacoby Ballard on using breath work to calm yourself, working with difficult people, and the danger of harboring resentment. Something I know a little bit about, personally. That's coming up right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breathwork. Would you mind saying a few words about that? Because meditation practice, mindfulness meditation, as we often discuss it on the show, is not a breathing exercise. It is following the breath as it naturally occurs. However, there's a ton of data to suggest that manipulating the breath in specific ways can, as you said, calm the nervous system. So drop some knowledge if you don't mind. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different 
breaths that activate the nervous system, which is really useful if you're going into some kind of event where you need to be fully present and more focused. And there's a whole other bunch of breaths that help ground the nervous system. And in general, we want our nervous systems to be grounded most of the time and able to activate when needed, but then go back to a settled place as quickly as possible. So as a yoga teacher, there's various breaths that I teach to both activate and ground. Given that most people are more anxious The not, I tend to teach a lot more grounding breaths, especially working with different targeted populations. Our nervous systems are under attack. Our beings are under attack. And so our nervous systems can be hypervigilant and in this anxious way. And so doing more grounding breaths for marginalized populations is important. Some of the tools are just simply breathing through your nose rather than breathing through your mouth can help ground because when we're trying to run away from something, we need as much oxygen getting to every cell in our body as soon as possible. And so the quickest route is through our mouths. It's slower to breathe through the nose and we breathe through our nose when we're grounded. So if we understand that, then we can preemptively try to breathe through our nose instead of our mouth to ground the nervous system. Another tool is just the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale. The inhale tends to be activating and the exhale tends to be grounding. So if you make the inhale longer and the exhale shorter, kind of like a breath of like hyperventilation, right? Then you're activating the nervous system. If you make the inhale shorter and the exhale longer, like a yawn or a sigh, then you're settling the nervous system. Our nervous systems do this. Our breath does this just kind of naturally. I watch my three-year-old, he'll go through a temper tantrum. And when he's settled down, he'll be in our laps usually and at some point, he'll like take a deep breath. And at that point, we we know like, okay, now you're back. You're fully back now. You're you're done with the tantrum. The monster has released you from its talons. Yes, that was very helpful. I appreciate that. In your book, I believe you also recommend as a meditative tool for working with anger a Tibetan practice called Tong Len. Could you describe that? Yes. What's Beautiful about Tonglen, it's different than a lot of other styles of meditation, is that you you are working with the breath. You're not trying to control the breath, but there's an awareness of the breath and you're tying it to certain phrases. So I started the Tonglen meditation with breathing in love and breathing out love. If a word like love doesn't work for you, then substitute any other word that does. That's just kind of that initial set of phrases is again, to settle the nervous system, allow you to feel taken care of, supported, and in a place where you can give out love as well, exhaling love. And then breathing and suffering and exhaling love is the work of compassion. And there's something about breathing and suffering, right? Breathing it into our very lungs is really intimate and intense and in some ways can get to the heart of compassion a little bit quicker than some of the more traditional karuna compassion meditation phrases. That said, at certain points, like right after a crisis or a tragedy has happened, Tonglen is not appropriate for that reason because it's too intense. We're already in a heightened moment, right? So using Tonglen with that kind of lens of like being trauma-informed to allow some days, some weeks for whatever it is to pass or to just intentionally be breathing in a different kind of suffering. I always tell my students that if you're feeling 
ungrounded or not so resourced on a given day to breathe in something like irritation that like your neighbor's mowing the lawn at an inopportune moment for you (laughs) is a little bit easier than like breathe in the latest gun violence tragedy and then breathe out love, right? If it's like the days afterwards. And then the next step of Tonglen is to breathe in love and to breathe out suffering, which is the work of letting go, the work of forgiveness to other chapters in my book to draw on all the resources around you, whether that's the love and care of your loved ones or whether that's a sense of being safe in the the house that you're in or the building that you're staying in. And given that set of conditions of being safe to be willing to set down some of your own armor, any limiting beliefs, anything that's held you back from being your best self, the kind of self that shows up in front of Joseph Goldstein, right? To let that go. And then always at the end of Tonglen, you return to the original phrases of breathing in love and breathing out love. And at that point, at the end of Tonglen, I think of breathing in love as the practice of gratitude to really intentionally put yourself in contact with the beauty and brilliance of this world to know that it's necessary to have that awareness every day in order to be with the suffering, that there's a balancing effect. So breathing in love and then breathing out love is the the work of generosity, of being willing to share the resources, the tools, the skills, the network, the relationships that you have for the goodness of all. And you probably already said this, and I apologize if I missed it, but just to be super, super, super clear, You're not manipulating the breath here. You're using these phrases as the breath naturally occurs. It is important to watch the breath. Like if someone's really activated, there probably is going to be a longer inhale and a shorter exhale. And if I'm in the role of teacher with someone and I'm leading a Tonglen meditation, I see that happening. If I'm in some of the harder phrases of breathing and suffering and breathing out love or breathing in love and breathing out suffering, then I go back to usually just watching your breath to just like deactivate and then like come back in when we're able to. So you're not intentionally manipulating the breath, but for every emotional state, there's a corresponding state of the breath. And so we can be aware of that as we meditate with any kind of meditation and notice for ourselves like, oh, a lot is coming up for me right now. Maybe I need to like set this aside and go for a walk or just watch the breath or do a simpler practice that's not so activating. Just quick note to skeptics here or anybody who's just new to this. I don't, and Jacoby may know, but I don't know what the science is around Tonglen, but the science around its kind of related practice of metta or loving kindness is quite strong in that loving kindness is not related to the breath as much. You're just imagining people and sending phrases like may you be happy, may you be safe, healthy, live with ease. Jacoby mentioned earlier, a variant of that is called karuna or compassion practice, where you're specifically imagining people who are suffering and you're sending phrases like may you be free from suffering. These practices, there's quite a bit of data to suggest they have physiological, psychological, and even behavioral impacts. And the bottom line from all of that is that love, broadly understood, as we discussed earlier, is not a factory setting, it's a skill. And that is incredibly important and powerful and empowering news. I don't know if you want to add to that in any way, Jacoby, to put you on the spot. I don't know if you know what the data is around Tung Len, but maybe just to agree that it's good news because I saw you uh, nodding. Yeah, I, I do think it is good news. I don't know specific data on Tung Len off the top of my head, but I do know that when we practice loving kindness or karuna or Tung Len, that 
our relationships get better. And that for me is like all the evidence that I need and motivating enough. I know for myself as a social justice activist that these practices have shifted my lens and my strategy from being like forceful and shaming and judging people into better behavior to slowing down, getting curious about like what are the underlying conditions that lead someone to act in such and such a way that might be harming a specific community that's adjacent to their own or on the other side of the world? How is it that they're able to engage in that given that I believe in their basic goodness? And I have come to believe more and more in people's basic goodness through practicing loving kindness, right? And cultivating the sense of connection with a variety of other beings that have different lived experience from me. Two questions that arise based on the paragraphs you just uttered there. One of them is, can you say more about how you came to believe in our basic goodness through these practices? Like, I would love to hear some more detail about that. And then the other question is, is shame never an appropriate tool when you're trying to bring about change? Yeah. So one of the categories of meta is working with difficult people. And so for me, some of the difficult people are those who hold the most power on the planet or the most wealth. And as I've come to work on loving them too, it's allowed me to humanize them and see them not just as people that are enacting privilege or that are inherently violent, but it's reminded me that these are also human beings who also have families, who also were once children, who also are going to be elders if they live long enough. And then I guess also I've been helped through relationships within yoga and mindfulness. I think of this man, Rob Schwar, who runs the Give Back Yoga Foundation. And he used to be a World Bank executive. And once we were having dinner in a crowded dining hall and there was nowhere else to sit except for this with this like 50-year-old man. And so I went to sit and learned that this was Rob and we got to talking. And I learned that he was a former World Bank executive and was at the very meeting that I was protesting in 2000 in Washington, D.C., And we just had a good chuckle about that. Like how interesting that here the practice of yoga is bringing us together to sit at the very same table and have a conversation like this, allowing us to connect. And a lot of his work is also working with marginalized populations, working with survivors of trauma, vets, children in schools, and addiction and recovery. And so these are, you know, all groups of people that we both care about. And we came from very different places to arrive there. But I think my practice of loving kindness allowed me to be open to the possibility of connection with this person that as a young activist, I was looking for the faces that were standing in the windows of the buildings that we were like surrounding and preventing anyone else from entering into. And part of that tactic was to shame and humiliate people into better practice. And I learned through this friendship with Rob that we're going to get a lot further if we sit down at the same table and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and connect with one another and get curious about what moves one another. What do you really care about? This is what I really care about to use the listening skills that our mindfulness practices had cultivated over years. He, in the year 2000, he probably wouldn't have been able to sit at the table with me and I probably wouldn't have been able to sit at the table with him. But 12 short years later, we both were practicing in very different spaces and then come to be in the same place. I think that's, for me, that's the hope 
of mindfulness practice and why I really believe in it as a tool for social change. So what about shame? Do you think we should keep it on the table as a viable tool sometimes? I think it's an emergency break, if nothing else is working. There's a big conversation within social justice movements and that also the right has taken up about calling out people. And a lot of that is using public shaming to direct someone into better behavior. That is most dangerous when there haven't been any other attempts, any other tactics used to shift someone's behavior, whether that's interpersonal harm, something like sexual violence, or whether that's more institutional harm. So I think we can get a lot further if we try to connect and build relationship. But if the most we can do with a given condition of harm is to stop harm, then a public shaming might be the thing that's going to stop harm when nothing else has worked. It might bring it to a screeching halt. You know, it might get someone out of office because the truth about their behavior and relationships with their staff has come out. But I think all that's going to do is stop things, stop harm from happening in the moment. It's not actually going to clear the way to change being made. To me, that all, and I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but that all just intuitively sounds right. And Another thing I've heard people, wise people on the left say is that if you're stuck in the finger pointing mode, often you're not taking a look at your own stuff. Yeah. And again, that's such a gift of mindfulness practice, of yoga practice, is to really sit with yourself. And an activist, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, that I really studied when I was in college, she always said that when you're pointing the finger out, there's always three fingers pointing back at yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, of course, it's important to like look at what angers you, what brings you grief in the world. But also that's probably because there's something personal for you. For so many of us, what brings us into the work we do is our own personal history, right? That there's like, I wouldn't have necessarily been six years old and been like, I'm going to be a meditation teacher when I grow up. (laughs) But conditions aligned such that that became the best path forward for me. Looking at ourselves, studying ourselves is such a part of most spiritual practices, most world religions, at least in the the mystical aspects of world religions. I think it's so important to cultivating a better way forward so that rather than pointing the finger out, we can like study ourselves and then like hold hands and move together. Well, that leads us nicely to a word or a subject that you invoked briefly a few minutes ago, and you do dedicate a lot of time to it in your book, which is forgiveness. You talk a lot about how to practice it, and I want to get detailed there. But let's just start high level. What is forgiveness and what is it not? (laughs) It's not condoning harm. It's not saying that whatever happened is okay. It's not accepting it, but it's reckoning with the fact that it did happen and trying to move forward in the least harmful and the most skillful way. A prerequisite for forgiveness is to process rage and grief because that's inevitably there when harm has gone down. We've already talked a lot about that. But then to be able to forgive, again, recognizes that the way forward is through connection. As Martin Luther King said, darkness does not dispel darkness. Only light can do that. Or as the Buddha said, 
Hatred does not cease by hatred, only only love alone. So forgiveness allows us to lean into that, given that like something small or something profound went down between two individuals, two communities, the world, many different interest groups, to do the personal work in our heart, to release resentment. And sometimes it's not even about relationship, but it's about your own well-being. There have been studies on resentment that show that harboring resentment literally makes us sick, that it elevates cholesterol levels, elevates the risk of heart disease, elevates stress hormones in the body. And so for any doubters of forgiveness, I usually lead with that, that forgiveness is really about you and your own well-being and your own freedom, letting go of the burden of resentment, letting go of the story, letting go of needing to be right even, but doing the work to kind of shed the weight so that you can move forward with the lessons of whatever happened, the wisdom that you've gained, but not the energy of resentment or or rage. Well said. And in fact, you talk about practices for forgiveness. And in your view, the best place to start is forgiving yourself. Uh, and you tell a story, a very personal story about forgiving yourself for something you did in high school. Yeah, I believe you're talking about my, I had a relationship with a man who committed suicide. And he did that right after a date that we were on. We were, I grew up close to Aspen and and we were skiing together. And I had realized in the week before that, that I didn't have romantic or sexual feelings for this person, but I really cared about him and I wanted him in my life. And so I told him that on the ski lift, just like knowing I have to be honest with this person. That is a kind thing to do rather than lead someone forward with something that doesn't feel right for me. And so I did, and he skied to his car, went home and hung himself. And I was a junior in high school. He went to another high school nearby, and the story at his school became that someone broke his heart and so he he took his life. What I came to understand through his friends and other students at his school was that he had a really difficult home life. And I had known from Mike directly that he was afraid of his dad. Anytime that like after we were out together, he cleaned up his car in the parking lot of the bowling alley or the milkshake shop so that it would be sparkling clean by the time he drove it home because his dad would investigate it. And if it wasn't clean, he was going to get beaten, right? And so that was built up over many years of living with his dad and also being separated from his mother, which is the parent that he would have preferred to live with. And so that ate him from the inside. In terms of my work with it, I have had to forgive myself for being the last straw. I've had to forgive myself for not knowing his incredible vulnerability in that moment. I've had to forgive myself for what his family might think of me and the story that they might have of me. I think I've also had to forgive myself for telling the truth and that leading to someone's death. I know that it wasn't my fault. There were there was a whole slew of conditions, but it wasn't until many years later and after many years of therapy and being in a new loving relationship that I was able to like process and realize, wow, I, since that event in high school, I didn't break up with anyone for the next 15 years because I was terrified. And that often 
made me stay in relationships that were not right for me for much longer than I should have. So there's this like, I, I learned this negotiation of like clarity and honesty within ourselves, but also kindness towards another. I'm thinking right now of some of the invitations of the practice of right speech. And the first is kindness. And then the second one is truthfulness. And is it necessary now? Yeah. So then, you know, the layers of forgiveness then rippled outwards of like forgiving myself for not being totally authentic in a whole bunch of relationships over the next many years after, after Mike took his life. And then I think forgiving myself for how my truth might land for someone else. It's my truth and it might break someone's heart. It might break trust. It might disappoint someone. But I know that truth builds trust ultimately in a relationship, in a community. And it's part of how I take care of relationships, to be honest and transparent. But I've kind of had to practice my way back into that because I would err on the side of kindness rather than truthfulness for years. I'm really sorry this happened to you. I can only imagine through an empathetic leap what a weight that would be to carry. I'm wondering from a contemplative practice perspective, because I think we're all carrying a shame for past misdeeds. Nobody's blameless here. So how would you recommend we work with, you mentioned therapy, and I I would endorse that heartily, but from a meditation practice perspective, how would you recommend we work with that? There's phrases of forgiveness that you can direct towards yourself. One of the most gentle that I use is May I allow myself to be a student of life and to make mistakes, which admits that all of us are students of life and that no one is perfect. And so for me, it just like allows myself to reckon with mistakes that I've made without that layer of shame. And I think having a a teacher or a sangha spiritual community that you can be transparent with and honest about what you're working through others who can hold the gravity of of what you're working with with you so that it's not the harm that you caused a decade ago isn't just yours to hold, but it's held within your relationship with your teacher or your relationship with your, your sangha or your friend group, whoever knows the intimate details of your life. When we try to bottle something up and, and just hold it ourselves, there is this constriction that happens in our bodies and in our breath and in our nervous systems. Whereas if we can allow it to be held collectively, whether that collective is two people or 2,000 people, the weight is is less, right? If you put a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water, it's really, really salty. But if you put a teaspoon of salt into a lake, you can barely taste the salt at all. Coming up, Jacoby talks about uh, letting go of shame his personal tussle with equanimity, I like that phrase, and the importance of joy and play after this. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Going back to the meditation practice, and you'll notice this is something I harp on a lot just because I want people to walk away with things they can do. Just take us back into, I mean, you don't have to guide us in meditation, but just practically recommend we practice with the stuff that's bothering us about ourselves. So through different practices of cultivating focus, holding a specific instance of harm or a specific relationship in your awareness, and then not even really going into the story of what happened, but offering the phrases such as, may I forgive myself for any harm that I've caused knowingly or unknowingly in thought, word, or action. May I forgive myself and allow myself to be a student of life and to make mistakes. And if I cannot forgive myself in this moment, may I be able to forgive myself in the future. There's something about the repetition of phrases, right, that Often, initially, there's doubt or even disdain for these phrases or <laughs> yes. you're like, what? Yes. How could I say this about this situation? This is ridiculous. But being harsh and forceful with ourselves is not going to lead us into better behavior. It rarely works. But if we can be gentle and allow ourselves to be guided and held by others through this, keep doing it again and again. Some of the things that I've worked to forgive myself for, at first I cringed and now it's just like, oh, I did that. And I can talk about it publicly. I can talk about it with people that I'm meeting for the first time. I don't have that layer of shame about it. And I think that that's letting go of the shame really allows us to get to what originally happened and reckon with the feels of feelings of, of grief or disappointment in ourselves and from that place allows us to commit to a different way of showing up in relationship with our colleagues, with our family members, with our beloveds. Now that we're on a practical tip here, let me just stay with this for a second. Do you recommend that while we're doing this practice, we hold in our mind an image of ourselves or maybe tune into the sensations of the body sitting in a chair so that we have a kind of target for these phrases? Well, similar to metta, just saying the phrases allows is that something for your attention to land on. But I also often say that it's important to have a trauma-informed practice. So if you get overwhelmed at any point working with forgiveness specifically, because we're going right into harm with forgiveness practice, right? To at any moment, allow yourself to drop the phrases and just pay attention to the breath or to allow your eyes to open and look around your space and notice three unique things about this space. There's something about the movement of the skull on the top vertebra that allows your nervous system to ground and steady again and allows you to feel safe. 
And then from Resma Medicum, who I know has worked with your staff, to even look behind you and to know like there's nothing behind me that's going to get me in this moment. And that that can allow you to settle or some other strategies are to rub your thighs or squeeze your shoulders or massage your hands. Something about embodiment and coming back to sensation allows you to be in this moment doing the forgiveness practice, not in the moment that happened however long ago of harm. So in working with really difficult things, well, first of all, it's important to build up the capacity. We start with what's annoying and irritating and then build up towards the greatest harms that we've ever done, the greatest harms ever done to us, the greatest harms on the planet affecting the most people or beings or ecosystems. But it's like a muscle and you can't just rush into it, right? I I don't put on my running shoes and start to just run a marathon out of nowhere. I start to run little bits and pieces and build up capacity. Same thing with forgiveness. And if you don't do that, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're kind of setting yourself up for either being like triggering trauma from the past or giving up on the practice of forgiveness altogether, which is part of why it's important to be guided by a teacher who can kind of signal that for you if you're not able to catch it. And just somewhat quickly, because I want to move to the third stage of the arc you trace in your book, which is equanimity. You described the meditation practice as it pertains to forgiving ourselves. How would you tweak it for forgiving other people? Using really, really similar phrases. May I forgive you for the harm that you, you have caused me? knowingly or unknowingly, and thought, word, or deed. May I see your humanity in the midst of my pain. May my forgiveness soften any difficulties between us. May I allow you to to be a student of life and to make mistakes. And if I'm not able to forgive you in this moment, may I be able to forgive you in the future. That last line is really important, right? Because sometimes we're not ready to forgive a certain person or a certain you know set of circumstances. But it reminds us that that's where we want to head, that we want to forgive everyone, forgive all of the harm. Not that we're saying that it's okay to have happened in the first place, but in order to move forward with spaciousness and vision and imagination and creativity, we can't be carrying the weight of the past. We could certainly be carrying the wisdom learned from the lessons of the past, we should, but the weight, the energy of it, the burden of it is not going to serve us to creating something different. You use an interesting phrase in the book, a tussle with equanimity. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Equanimity has been the most difficult practice for me, again, because of my training in social justice of not accepting the given reality and understanding that another world is possible, right? So I've asked every teacher that I've ever sat with about equanimity practice, how can I accept this moment if it's full of racism and white supremacy? How can I accept this moment when it's full of distrust and tension? And the best answer I received came from Larry Yang, one of the founders of the East Bay Meditation Center, who said the scriptures say nothing about the next moment. It's all about what's already happened and this moment. That's all you have to accept. And that that gives you the space to move forward, again, with vision, imagination, and creativity. But if you're fighting what's happened in the past, why did this happen? This shouldn't have happened to me. This shouldn't have happened to this really good person. That resistance is taking up energy that could otherwise be used to creating a better way forward. Which is not to say to 
go the route of a spiritual bypass and just say that everything is fine. A lot of things in our world are far from fine, but it's more about allowing your mind, your heart, your nervous system to be in a place of steadiness, to move forward effectively and skillfully. What are some practices you recommend for developing this quality of balance or equanimity or acceptance? One practice that encourages it is to consider if I keep fighting or if I continue my anger or continue to resist, say, the presence of alcoholism in my family, right? Then that's that's going to be where all my attention goes and, and to consider like, What's going to happen if I just stay in this constricted place about that pattern in my family? What's going to happen in a year? Where am I going to be at? Where's my family going to be at? What's going to happen in five years? What's going to happen in 10 years? And then to do the opposite, to consider if I come to a place of peacefulness with this, I have a family of a lot of alcoholics. Wow. Where is that going to allow me to go in the next year? Where's that going to allow me to go with my family? in the next five years, 10 years. For me, it's just, it's really encouraging. It's it's very clear. Like, yes, I would choose the, the, the route of equanimity. And then again, like all of the other Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, and joy, um, equanimity is often taught as a set of phrases to repeat inside yourself. And it's just using this mechanism of our thought that whatever we practice grows stronger. And so if we're practicing these phrases of equanimity, then we're going to become steadier and more equanimous over time. It's just, it's not going to happen tomorrow. You're not you're not going to like sit down and do an equanimity meditation and then like everything's fine from here on out, right? But it's it's building the capacity for steadiness over time. And again, I think that the greatest measure is our relationships. People around you are going to notice and and reflect that back to you of like, wow, you're so much less reactive than you once were, or you have so much greater understanding, or you're really patient, right? So then that, to to really be present to that feedback from community and take that in and remind myself like, oh, that's because of my practice. That's not just like happenstance. It's what I've been cultivating for a long time. What are the phrases you recommend for equanimity? May I accept reality as it is? rather than how I would like it to be. May I learn to be present with the comings and goings of life. And this is what is happening. Whatever this is, this is what is happening. It's pouring all day when I wanted to go hiking. This is what's happening. My kid is tantruming when he needs to go to bed. This is what's happening. Reminds me to be with the moment as it is rather than fighting it. That's a really good one. This is what's happening. I should have used that last night. (laughs) Instead, I self-medicated with Netflix. (laughs) Two other practices you recommend in the final chunk of the book are gratitude and generosity. Perhaps in our remaining moments, you can say a little bit about both and, and how they can help us go on this arc from anger to forgiveness to equanimity. Yeah, gratitude is... Yeah, there's so many studies done about gratitude practices as well. Remembering the good things about each day is so important to create more of those good moments <laughs> from day to day. Or if it's just a hard period in your life to to know that it's not all a wash, like there's still flowers that are blooming or there's still, you know, my neighbor singing really sweet melodies. So in that way, I think of gratitude as a practice of resilience to not 
allow the sorrows of this world to overwhelm you or mow you over, but to continue to be committed to noticing all of the brilliant things that humanity has done, all of the beautiful ecosystems on the planet. I think of it as a practice of present moment awareness, because if you're not really present, then you're not going to notice. So it also helps you be here day to day. One of the practices for gratitude that I recommend is a gratitude journal, which is just to write down one or two or three things at the end of your day, every day for a set period of time. Usually a month or, or more is a good amount of time. A little shorter than that doesn't always have the impact. And then after your set period that you've committed to writing in your gratitude journal, to go back and read it and then to read it as a regular practice, to remind yourself of the goodness and to remind yourself of to not miss the little things um, that make life so wonderful. And then the practice of generosity is a way to share the goodness with more people. I know one of my commitments around generosity is giving away 10% of my income to community-run organizations, a lot of whom that I choose to give to are led by uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And one of the kind of unforeseen results of this commitment has been that every year when I do my taxes, I get to relive all of the ways that so many organizations have shown up for people on the planet. And it has made doing my taxes like not as not as formidable, sometimes fun even, which I think that's part of what generosity can do and kind of bleed into different areas of our life. Is it like something that was like totally mu- mundane or just like required adds a little joy to it? Is there something I should have asked that I didn't? I thought you were going to ask more about joy as like a main area to explore together. Well, let's do that then. I mean, you kind of led there with generosity and gratitude. The joy chapter that I wrote, it started as a love letter to queer and trans people. Some people describe my book as unapologetically queer, which I think of as, as important in this moment, given the so many local legislatures passing laws against queer and trans youth, and also given history of queer folks. To be fully ourselves is a practice of joy. And I think it's also not always what's represented about any marginalized group of people, right? I think it's really important to notice Black people loving themselves, trans people loving ourselves, disabled people loving themselves as disabled people, not despite any of these conditions, but inherently drawn out of these conditions. So that's part of where my chapter on joy came from, but then I was also have been practicing the, the heart teachings. So in an earlier draft of my book, I had a small chapter on joy and then a large chapter as a love letter to queer pe- people. And my editor was like, I think there needs to be more queerness in your joy chapter. And, you know, your love letter to queer folks is great, but kind of out of nowhere. There's it, like, it, it doesn't really fit. And so I put them together and Yeah, I think being unapologetically queer comes out of queer joy and honoring and celebrating one another and uplifting one another as a practice and our resilience as a targeted people. And I think it also has allowed me to connect to the joy and resilience of other targeted communities as well and to support their joys, whether that's like supporting 
Native folks reclaiming traditional foods that have been taken from them or supporting them making foods that their ancestors made but haven't been made in their homes for generations. Because I'm in a practice of joy, I am more compelled to support the joy, the joy of other people. Practice of joy. How can all of us, queer or otherwise, practice joy? I think to have it as an objective for your day, every day, to have play and joy on the to-do list. I'm recording this interview in my friend's house and I love riding my bike. And so one of my practices of joy was to ride my bike over here instead of drive my car. It could be just little things like that of just like remembering what do I love? What fills me up? And doing that deliberately, daily, knowing that we have to do so many things that do not fill us with joy every day as well. So there's there's a balancing aspect to that. And then... Other practices of joy are taking in the goodness to like pause, to sniff the flower, to not just pass it by. Our children are so wonderful at noticing joy, whether it's like a swarm of ants that are like just appeared on the sidewalk and it's fascinating, or whether it's something that like their vision develops and they can see further. Like I remember when my child, when he was younger, uh, he could see mountains for the first time. We live in Salt Lake City. There's mountains all around us. And he was like, there's a mountain and there's a mountain. And he got so excited, right? There's this childlike sense of wonder that all of us can cultivate. And it just comes from noticing what's around us. In closing here, can you please, and a lot of people get sheepish about this, plug your book and any other resources you've put out into the world that people might want to access after having spent some time with you? Sure. My book is A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. And I'll offer a whole bunch of virtual and live workshops through my website, jacobyballard.net. I also teach weekly yoga classes and a weekly meditation sangha that you can sign up for if you want to be live with me. There's also recordings of my meditations and yoga classes on my site. And you can find me on Instagram just by my name. Thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks again to Jacoby Ballard. Don't forget to check out his book, A Queer Dharma. Also want to thank everybody who worked so hard on this show. Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, Maria Wirtel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. We also get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a uh, bonus meditation. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.